0: was a relief cuz you're going to get out of somewhere. Of <coughs> so before that, so my friend Sarah who used to be here is also an ordnance and over at Droitwich, they had a live donkey for their Palm Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you have me. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm going to take you on a journey. Let's go back if you will 2000 about two thousand two hundred years. I was going to be precise then, but we won't get that. Um, so the Jewish people—they've had centuries of oppression. They've had every empire that you can imagine trying to control them, rule over them, dictate to them. Um, right from so you all know the biblical stories. So you got the Egyptians, then you have the Babylonians. You got then the Persians. They were kind of a little bit nicer to them. but They weren't great, and then. 2,200 years ago, the Greeks turn up. There's there's another word for the Greek empire that really took over. I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going (laughs) to bother. And they all wanted Israel to fall in line with their religious and social practices, to assimilate and lose their identity. Now, this fueled within uh, Jewish thinking Israel at the time, like a nationalism and a far more militaristic understanding of how they saw their messianic promise, the idea that there would be a saviour that would rescue Israel. Israel from all these people um, it was very much an us against the world mentality and of, of this one warrior, warrior king who would come and save them now all this oppression got worse until this guy turned up pay attention rich <laughs> <laughs> Antiochus Epiphanes I don't know how it's pronounced properly but just trust me, go with that Um, this guy is a Greek leader um, he decides that Israel should adopt a Greek way of thinking so they call it Hellenism but um, he decided that they should start combining the worship of Zeus and Yahweh together so just combine the God that we worship with this other Greek God and combine the two and make them one Um, some of the Jews went along with this and adopted it the others really didn't and ended up being put to death for it. So, they, And this guy was aggressive with what he thought. He was manipulative. He was often called mad. The reason why I put coins up on here is because he put his face on, which is this side. Like A lot of people do that, so we have a queen on ours. That's, that's normal. But what he did was start to make himself, as he went on through his rule, he changed the way he looked, so he looked like Zeus. So this guy thought he was actually God. It wasn't like the Romans where they thought that you should worship the emperor as god he genuinely thought he was zeus crackers basically <laughs> and um he elected a greek high priest over the temple he appointed this tyrant philip over jerusalem he's generally just not a nice guy and a little thing i'm not going to go into the details of this but basically it all kicked off between the romans the egyptians and the greeks they all fell out with each other and then this guy decides to take out the fallout on Jerusalem. So what he does is he marches a massive army into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, massacring all the, all the males and enslaving or killing um, the women and children. He then pla- he destroys half the city whilst he's at it. So he's not subtle, like he knocks down half the city walls. He then places a... Altar to Zeus on the high altar in the temple. I don't know if any of you heard the term the ab- desolation of the abomination and all that sort of stuff. This is what it, this is where it comes from. This is what happened. And um, he then stops them. He puts laws against circumcision. He puts laws against kosher food, so they can't eat how they're supposed to. They basically cannot worship Yahweh without threat of death. He orders a death sentence for anybody who possesses the Torah. And he engages in religious and social cleansing of the Jewish people. This led to a resistance group who are called the Khaz, I can't pronounce this either, the Khazidim. That's where the Pharisees developed out of. So you can kind of see where the Pharisees in Jesus' time. This is a bit of a side. So you can imagine like the Pharisees in Jesus' time, they're really strict on law and everything. You can kind of get why when you understand what's been going on. Um, this eventually led to this little group of guerrilla fighters. So not guerrillas like you know monkeys, but <laughs> like guerrillas as in, so like running around the um, countryside being a bit sneaky. Um, under this guy, Judas, Judas Maccabee, this is way better than you're gonna get on BBC, I'm telling you now. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they, um, so this guy, because Judas Maccabee, takes out a bunch of these guerrilla fighters and he beats the Greeks. Like this is an incredible victory. So depending on which history you follow, because you've got obviously the mythology and the way that the Jews all plant it out in their history. They're obviously going to embellish a few things, I would if I was doing it. So as far as they're concerned, there were 60,000 Greeks, 7,000 Jews. Probably not realistic considering the Jews won. It's probably more like 20,000 to 7,000, but they were still massively over, over, like over empowered by the Greeks. And, um, but they won welcome back okay, fine. Um, they welcomed them back into the city, and as they pr- walk in, the crowds go r- wild for them. They're loving this. Th- it's the first time anyone's actually won against one of these people. This isn't like, "Oh, an empire collapsed," and they kind of got let loose. They won. They fought for their freedom and got it. Um, they wiped them all out of the temple, they pushed them out of Jerusalem, and they came back in, and they placed palm branches at the feet of these welcoming back warriors this is 200 years before Christ and they start to welcome this guy and they don't, um, they don't say he's the Messiah but some people do but they're wrong obviously but um, there's this kind of like exhilaration like wow we've done something amazing here they then walk into the temple and they cleanse it of all worship of Zeus they get rid of everything they can they then place um, Jonathan Maccabee who's a relation to Judas Maccabee. I can never remember if he's uncle, cousin, brother, or something. Other, but they're related, and um, places him as the high priest. <coughs> so basically, they they've wiped out all presence of Greek influence upon their society, and it's it's striking the similarity between the the story that we read in Palm Sunday, which will be read later, and the way that they're welcomed back in is it's important. To remember it. So, two hundred years later. We fast-forward to the time of Jesus, first-century Palestine. It's ruled by the Romans now. The Greeks didn't actually last that long. Um, The Romans placed puppets of kings over Jerusalem, so they were made out like they were Jewish, but they weren't really. They were just Roman people that they wanted to put in place. Um, They had relative religious freedom, but they still had this looming threat of annihilation. They, They still thought to themselves, any moment now, any other ruler can come along, and just wipe us out it's not we still want our freedom we want to be autonomous as people um they're tolerated by the romans they have more internal strife than they had before they have um, factions here factions they all arguing against each other about how they should be jewish how they should interact with the romans and the rest of the world um there's massive corruption so understand things like when Jesus talks to tax collectors, that's a huge thing. That's that's not an okay thing that, that they're doing. They're basically working work, working on behalf of the Romans to oppress the poor. And what's developed is an intense form of worship that's focused on action and law. And like I said before, it's understandable when you can see centuries of being oppressed and their whole way of religious thinking and life and their society being bashed about and tried to be pulled apart made into something else you would become quite insured and try and make your you know what we do it naturally as well anybody tries to attack us it's what you do you try and protect the thing that's most precious to you so it is within that world that we will have our reading from amy
1: The readings from Matthew 21, its verses 1 to 16. Um, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her halt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away." This took place to fulfil what was to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the hev- highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole of the city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who selling doves. It is written that he said to them, My house will be called the ha- house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind came to the lame, the blind and the lame came to him and s- uh, at, the tem- uh, at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children sal- shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. How do you here do you hear what these children are saying they asked him yes replied jesus have you never read from the lips of your children and the infants you have ordained praise
0: so i'm guessing you can see the similarities there between the two stories like jesus or actually matthew writing this he, he i believe this happened as an actual thing But I think Matthew chooses the way he writes it and arranges it in his gospel for a purpose. Like, he's distracting me here, man. Thank you. So, yeah. Who here finds it hard to understand Jesus or who he is? Two vicars do. That's either comforting or disturbing, most (laughs) of the people. Yeah. I mean, who he really is. Um, So he's the king, but he's also a servant. He's the creator of the universe, and he's a teeny little baby in a manger. And he's the god of everything, but he dies. Um, So we so often get it wrong in what he means by what he says and who he claims to be. Um, And we often mix those those things up and and filter them through our own agendas and views and circumstances. I do it constantly. We all do that. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he was walking through that, when he decided to get on a donkey and enter into Jerusalem in the way he did it. Um, The Jews knew that Jesus was king. They understood fully that the man riding in on a donkey was a claim to divinic lineage. So they knew that it wasn't just doing that as like a, oh there just happens to be a donkey there, I'll just get on board that and go in, that's a good, you know, better than a camel. He's choosing like a donkey on purpose, it's to say that I am of the, s- the line of David, he was making a statement, he was going in to show them I am the king that you are looking for, I'm the, I'm the one. He wasn't being subtle about things, you know, he never really said he was the Messiah doing that, but he might as well have done, they're just so blind they couldn't see it. Um they were. They, he, they thought he was the one they were hoping for. They thought he was the re- this revolutionary leader they longed for. They thought he was basically going to be Judas, um, Judas Maccabee. Um, was his name? Maccabee the second. And like I say, I can't begin to count the amount of times in my own life when I've reconfigured who Jesus is. So he's not for the Jews. He's not a, a warrior king coming in. That's what they're expecting. Uh, how often I do exactly the same thing. I try to fit Jesus into my own purposes, my own agendas. And even worse is when we choose a view of him that allows us to ignore and hide from the reality that is God's call on our lives, whatever that is. But thanks thank God for grace. So like Jesus knows this. He isn't in some sort of denial when he rises into Jerusalem. In fact, like Rich said earlier. In John's account, he weeps over the city. He isn't entering with like a joyful heart, like, oh, this is incredible, all these people are worshipping me and lifting me up. He's, he's entering there knowing his destination, his ultimate destination. He's knowing full well that these people that he weeps over and goes to him who lift him up and praise him, very soon we'll be doing something completely different to him. He allows the people to acknowledge who he is, and then he does something completely unexpected. He walks into the temple, he turns it over, and he rages against the oppression and abuse of the poor and the religious hypocrisy of those that expect him to rescue them whilst they adopt the very system and practices that they expect to be rescued from. If you understand what's happening in the temple is that you've got poor people who can't afford the sacrifice that they have to give to be part of the system within that temple, to be part of the worshiping community imagining us standing at the door here saying it's 50 pounds to be part of this community but then they weren't they uh, they couldn't afford to do that so they were lending people money so i'm sitting on the door i say to you 50 pounds come in here i haven't got it okay i'll lend you 50 pounds you owe me 100 pound next week plus another 50 the week after that's basically what's going on and it's these people are expecting a messiah to come along and rescue them from the oppressor outside. When actually, they need to take a hard look at what's going on with him. What he does instead, he goes to the blind and the lame. He finds those that are less than in society. And he heals them. He shows them value. He doesn't go to the the religious people that are doing all this stuff. he He ruins all that stuff, basically, and just goes to find the people that really need him. And then the only people that actually get who he is is the children because they don't see him with an agenda they don't see jesus with any desire other than knowing who he is they just see him exactly as he is as he walks in there there's no kind of hidden sort of agendas or any ideas that they need to build upon who we want who they want him to be and you get the truth out of them now i've got a little video for you to watch It. that was a poem um, by American writer Wendell Berry. I left the ending on there because it's basically a trailer for a film about his life and what he talks about in his poetry and his writings. And I want you all to go and watch it because it's amazing. But um, yeah, he talks about this unclear objective to which all strive without consideration of the damage, the ecolo- ecological, <laughs> the economical, social, And personal damage that we do to ourselves in order to aim towards something that we can never reach. In essence, living for something we were never created for. Now, a couple of months ago, um, Rich spoke about upgrading our lives or downgrading our lives for the sake of others. If you weren't here, I recommend you listen to it. It was an amazing talk. It's on our website. But again, the challenge Jesus gives to us is to look at our story. To look at the direction in which we're heading to recognize the objective to which we are drawn. And like those first century people, those first century worshippers of Jesus, um, are we unaware that we are simply complicit in our own oppression? Hoping that a warrior king, a misunderstood Jesus, will come and rescue us from the outside enemy. Um, And I think this is implicit in Christianity at the minute. There's this kind of... When things get tough, we batten down the hatches and try to like it's us against the world. <laughs> I'm reticent to say it, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, there's this, g- there's a, there's a basically an article that's been out this week, even or it, it might have been the week before. Um, basically railing against the, the BBC about treatment of Christianity. Now the guy who wrote it, I love him to bits. He's great. So it's not it's not a personal thing, but just the the mindset that says, or well how dare people not take us seriously, or how, how can Christianity not be treated with respect or fairly? Is actually one of the words put in that thing. I'm not convinced it's the model Jesus gave us in the way we should live our lives or the direction we should be heading, the way we should think. We're no longer in Christendom. We're in a secular humanist society. And I think actually the church thrives within an environment where it's not in control or treated fairly. Jesus gives us a new objective and a new direction, a real purpose. And instead of creating a closed, comfy world and hoping for his return, where those sort out those that offend and attack us, he says, Know who you are a child of God, a son or daughter, part of the very family of God. And like his example, we sit on our donkey and enter this world, headed towards that Good Friday cross. Allowing the world to misunderstand you, to be baffled by you, to not get it, to mock you, insult you, to persecute you for their sake. We're called to know exactly who we are in Jesus. We're royalty. But we're also called to lay it down for the sake of the world. Uh, There's a quote I've got from this guy, Eugene Peterson. Most of you would have heard of him. If you've not, he's the guy that wrote The Message. He's an amazing author writer and pastor it's probably one of the most humble people you'll ever see interviewed or anything this man's like is in christian worlds, he's like a rock star but he's this doddery old guy who doesn't do interviews with people and stuff so i kind of respect him he's not he's not on like the the talking circuit he doesn't do this for gain he's like a little local pastor that god raised up and he says the minute we try to spiritualize jesus we become gnostics it's an idea just the truth. There's no flesh to it. You're the flesh. I'm the flesh. Jesus is the flesh. Live Eucharist. And what he means by that is we aren't called to live a life that knows some vague truths about an esoteric God who lives in the sky or some. You know what? I've been spending 10 years of my life, past 10 years, studying theology. And it's so easy to get sucked into this world of just theory, truth, and basically being a Gnostic. I can tell you some bizarre, weird stuff about things like Trinity, um, some strange histories about the Old Testament. Like there's some odd stuff out there in terms of theology. But really, unless it impacts you and you imbibe Jesus and live Him out, it becomes irrelevant. And there's this is also this um, this one of our favourite tweets in the past couple of weeks. There's this. Is, um you might notice sometimes we tweet and um, we reference a tweet in our preachers here. Well, me and Owen might quite a lot, and Rich sometimes borrows them when he sees a good one we likes. But um <laughs> basically, it's this guy, and we're not going to tell you who it is because it's like me and Owen. It's kind of like we're we're kind of his fanboys, to be honest. Like, if we could get anybody to come over and f- like come over from some country other than the UK, <laughs> if you look on Twitter, you'll find out who it is to come and preach here and talk to us. We He's great he doesn't always get it right sometimes i'm thinking what the heck are you talking about but most of the time he's spot on and he says this um what's the point of worship and it's to set your affections right so you can offer your life to those that reject you the way god gave his son when we were in trespasses and sins i repeat that the the point of worship is to set your affections right so you can offer your life to those that reject you the way God gave his son when we were in trespasses to sins. When we join together, when we worship together, when we live together, when we eat together, when we cry together, when we consume of the body and the blood of Jesus, we carry Jesus with us and out of us. We share in his very life, including that cross in the distance. When we get this, when we click and understand that the very hope of the world dwells, dwells within us, and our vulnerability and our emptiness, we cannot continue on the paths we make for ourselves. Our whole objective changes. So as we journey together this week in community and humility in the banquet and washing of feet, as we enter into the darkest of Fridays, would you walk with me in realigning ourselves to the one who went before us, towards that new objective Towards the cross in which we are called to join Christ, living for the salvation of those very people who oppress and persecute us, looking in hope, in expectation to that Sunday morning. And as we approach this table again, and we share in the body and blood of the one who laid down everything, even to death, for the sake of his neighbours, for the sake of you and I. Let us do the same as we allow ourselves to be crucified with Christ for the sake of those around us. Let's not just walk towards this table and join in in it. Remembrance, in terms of the biblical understanding of it, is not just remember something that happened, it's to remember what happened and partake in it, receive from it, and join in with it and continue it. That's how he meant when he said, remember me. He meant living who I am and share this, be broken for the world. Thank